Welcome back to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. Well, not that far, really, from the center left to the center right, which is where the sensible people are. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Damon Linker of The Week, Linda Chavez, Senior Fellow at the Niskanen Center, and Bill Galston of The Wall Street Journal. Welcome, everyone. Nice to be back. Sorry we missed a week. Let's start with uh, the impeachment news. Uh, setting this up, 30 Republican members stormed into what is called in Washington parlance the SCIF. That's the government term, Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility in the Capitol, uh, to protest what they called secret impeachment depositions. The lawmakers, some of whom carried their phones, which is against House rules, disrupted testimony for five hours. Matt Gates charged the hearings constituted an attempt to overturn the results of the 2016 election. Steve Scalise said it was a Soviet-style star chamber. Trump called it a lynching, and this prompted even the usually Trump-indulgent Wall Street Journal editorial page to issue a rebuke. Sorry, Bill. This kind of theater is uh, not unique to Republicans, though. Uh, in 2016, about 60 Democrats staged a sit-in on the House floor to demand gun control legislation. Congresswoman Maxine Waters vowed to remain there until hell freezes over. She actually left the following day, along with all the others. But before it fizzled, the congressional hissy fit got the tweeted support of Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and Hillary Clinton. Now, this week's Republican tantrum was at least partly the result of what some have called Trump's self-impeachment. Republicans have faithfully parroted White House talking points, only to have them collapse through Trump's own statements, those of his acting chief of staff, or sworn testimony. And the speed of these outreaches seems to have accelerated this week. So let's start out with a question for Bill. Um, a couple weeks ago, you argued very persuasively that it was, maybe it was a little longer ago than that, that um, it was probably a bad idea to initiate this impeachment now. Do you still feel that way? Well, first of all, to make my employer and my communications director happy, <laughs> I should add that my day job <laughs> is at the Brookings Institution, and I I scribble, scribble, scribble for the Wall Street Journal in my spare time. You are a distinguished columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, distinguished by my political preferences, <laughs> if nothing else. Uh, I continue to believe that an impeachment effort that does not lead to a Senate vote to remove Mr. Trump from office is either futile or worse than futile. Uh, I combine that with the belief that getting all the facts on the table is essential. And my position is that the Democrats could do the latter without necessarily going through the How form. could they have done the latter without an impeachment inquiry? How could they have subpoenaed all those officials? Well, the answer is, the answer to that is, they have not yet voted to authorize an official impeachment inquiry. It exists as words. Uh, the subpoenas have no more power than they would have under ordinary circumstances. As a matter of law, mm. I have been, you know, it is controversial, by the way, in, in legal circles as to whether a formal impeachment vote fundamentally changes the legal weight of subpoenas. But let's not right. get let's right. not get into the weeds, the weeds here. Uh as I have argued quite consistently, all roads lead to November of 2020. Uh, I have seen no evidence as yet uh, that the Republican rank and file are preparing uh, to break ranks with this president. Uh, the Quinnipiac poll that came out uh, yesterday showed that 6% of Republicans favored the impeachment and removal of the president unchanged from four weeks ago. Uh, and that is consistent with a lot of other evidence. Uh, and I will believe that impeachment is a good idea if and only if we see the political calculus that Senator, Senate Republicans must make shift 
Uh, I am, you know, I think it is very likely at this point, and I hope I'm wrong, that the vote is going to be very much along party lines in the Senate as it was in 1998. And you should ask Newt Gingrich whether that was a good idea. Mm. Well, Linda, so those are good points, but um, but there's a huge difference, isn't there, between Republican senators and Republican members of the House. So the Republican House members, they're from almost entirely you know, safe red districts. For senators, it's another matter. And for them, the fact that only 6% of Republicans are in favor of impeachment uh, isn't as important as the polls showing that larger and larger numbers of the voting population are in favor of the impeachment. It's now get, gotten to be an absolute majority who favor not just impeachment, but removal. Um, so um, what's your sense of where it is, you know, of comparing the House Republicans with Senate Republicans? Well, I think you're right about uh, the Senate, but I also think there's something else at play here, Mona. You and I worked for a Republican leader, Ronald Reagan. He actually led on issues and persuaded people that he was right. And I still believe, and I, you know, this is totally contrary to my personality, but I guess I'm the optimist here. <laughs> I still believe that a handful of Republicans who would begin to speak out, as Mitch McConnell did on Syria, on this very important issue of aid to Ukraine, could in fact enlarge that 6% that it is because no one who has any respect in the Republican Party, I mean, people like you and I are human scum, <laughs> according to the president. Um, you know, we, we, have to, uh, we have to assume that if you had just a handful, I mean, maybe it's three, maybe it's five, maybe it's six Republican senators who would say, you know, there's something really wrong here. The president, in fact, held up military aid that we voted for in a bipartisan way in a bill that he signed, and he did it for the crassest of political reasons to try to help his reelection effort and to promote a conspiracy that has been thoroughly debunked. If you had just a few people, and I think once the dam breaks, I think you'll see more, and I think you'll see more Republican voters deciding to at least begin to listen, because they're not listening now. Hmm. Well, I'm, I hope you're right. I'm a little skeptical uh, about... <laughs> By the way, as, as a Democrat, I, would, I have to say that a party divided between deplorables and human skulls <laughs> is in a bit of trouble. <laughs> okay, Damon, let's bring you in here. Um, so... Uh, the Republicans have made a lot of crazy charges about this hearing, and they do go on, you know. So, for example, oh, you know, you would you would guess from listening to Steve Scalise and some of the others that there aren't any Republicans even in the room uh, while these hearings are going on, that somehow they've all been excluded and that this is a star chamber. But that's not true. The Republican members of the Intelligence Committee are in there, you know, doing their jobs and so forth. And, and there were closed-door hearings about Benghazi, and there were closed-door hearings about Watergate and other things. But still, still... Do they have any sort of a point, um, whether you think, fr from any point of view, because um, I can think of some arguments that, you know, it's time for the Democrats to cut with the closed door stuff and, uh, and hold public hearings. What do you think? My answer is no, they do not have a point. Um, and actually, I disagreed okay. uh, at the top uh, of the podcast when you uh, it kind of likened in some way what uh, happened yesterday uh, in in the Capitol to what Democrats did about gun control um, with kind of you know having a protest uh, in Congress. I, I think this is quite different. I mean, I consider that, is it grandstanding, a little demagogic? Yeah, sure. That's kind of standard politics. Whereas what I think we saw here, I just filed a column that will be running on Friday about how this is like gonzo politics. This is like Hunter S. Thompson goes to Washington. This is, this is 
Republicans who know perfectly well that they are lying in every single thing they say, and the only reason they're doing it is because there is no truthful way to defend the things that Trump has done and said, and yet Trump is demanding that they defend him. So the only thing they can do is go in to the Capitol knowing that there are Republicans, as you said, in that meeting in the skiff, and there are Republicans actually out in the atrium in the protest who, if they wished, could enter that very uh, hearing room for the testimony and the deposition going on if they wished. And they stand there and say that it's a Soviet tactic keeping them out. That is just a flagrant lie. It's a joke. It's a stunt. And, and you know... It's quite possible that Republican voters who already still love Trump will like, you know, giggle and laugh and think this is great. And I'm sure I didn't watch uh, Fox probably thought it was a big hoot, but it's a joke. And I think, frankly, any American who actually cares about our institutions and the functioning of American democracy, democracy should look at this with total contempt. Who are these people who who basically are trying to, to, to save their president by making a mockery of exactly what, as you also said, Mona, that the Republicans did like in nine or ten separate investigations about Benghazi, holding private sessions. And why are they private? Because some of the things the people are testifying about could potentially be could potentially be classified, which is exactly what they supposedly went after Hillary Clinton for in those emails of hers that supposedly played fast and loose with classified information. It's just rank nonsense. So I, again, I obviously feel pretty passionately about it, but, uh, you know, I, I myself feel a fair amount of contempt about what they did on Wednesday. It's ridiculous. Uh, so, so I I don't disagree with your depiction of the Republicans' actions, but I had a lot of contempt for the Democrats uh, doing what they're pulling their stunt too. Maybe it wasn't quite as outrageous, but honestly, you're a member of the United States Congress. If you have a proposal about gun control, huh? Maybe you could do something like introduce legislation or hold hearings. You know, you don't have to stage a sit-in. I mean, that was just preposterous grandstanding, as you put it, and um, I had. Uh, I had very little sympathy for them. But um, Linda, you wanted yeah, to Yeah, I, I wanted to jump in here because one of the things that, you know, I started out life as a Democrat. I started out, you know, I was in civil rights protests. I was never against the war in Vietnam, by the way. But uh, I was actually a supporter of the war in Vietnam because I was part of the right wing of the left wing uh, on that issue. But what are the big differences between conservatives and liberals and Democrats and Republicans has always been the attitude towards the rules, mm -hmm. in my view, at least during the whole 60s. You know, it was it was conservatives who said you play by the rules, you follow the rules, you don't, you know, civil disobedience is, is not um, the way you, you change things. And if I were to liken this group yesterday to some, some something recent, I would liken them to Code Pink. This was Code Pink in action. Mm -hmm. You know, these were a bunch of people that were there to disrupt. I'm surprised they didn't have, you know, uh, jars full of blood or something to throw on the Democrats. Or funny hats. <laughs> or funny hats, <laughs> right, or funny hats, right? I don't know what By the way, they did disrupt. I forgot to say, they did disrupt the hearing for five hours. Oh, they, they could did not go five. forward. And no. by the way, the skiff, you know, I had special compartmented intelligence clearance when I was in the White House uh, with President Reagan. I remember the briefings before I got that clearance. I remember the kinds of things I was told. I mean, I was worried that I might talk in my sleep about something I had seen. <laughs> um, it was sacred. This was, you know, you, you, you did not ever break the rules in terms of of uh, intelligence. And these guys took not only took their phones and they were live tweeting inside this facility. This is a major, major problem. If they worked in the federal government, if they worked in the intelligence community, they could be brought up on charges and they would certainly lose their jobs. Now let's let's pursue this this very interesting point, Linda, about about institutions and about playing by the rules. By the way, um, 
studies still show, uh, for example, for example, Jonathan Haidt in his book The Righteous Mind talks about the different moralities of liberals versus conservatives, that they, they base their morality on different things. And one of the things that conservatives traditionally base their morality on is a respect for the rules and hierarchy. And so when they uh, object, for example, to illegal immigration, a lot of the time it's based on this idea that these are rule breakers and you don't want to um, reward people who, who don't play by the rules. Um, and yet, uh, you're right, in this instance and in many others with this president, you're seeing something that's much more familiar on the left. Um, but, uh, but so we heard this week from somebody, speaking of institutions, um, who blew me away by how impressive his, at least his prepared statement was, and that was William Taylor. Here is a really excellent representative of the um, public servant who has devoted his life to his country. He went to West Point. He served in Vietnam. He was decorated for valor. He then joins the State Department. He served all over the world um, for, for 50 years. Um, and, uh, and, and what does this White House say about him, that he is uh, a radical, a, unelected bureaucrat? A radical, unelected bureaucrat. It's better than human scum. We've <laughs> <laughs> a hierarchy yeah, we have here. The world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, is human scum at the bottom? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have to, can we go? We have to work. We, we worked very hard for that title, <laughs> right. human scum. <laughs> It didn't come easy. Um, <clears throat> Could be vicious of but, me, um, but I guess. Yes. <laughs> so, and, and this this person who, you know, again, I from what I can see, and I don't know him, and I, you know, I'm sure he has faults as all human beings do, but he seems to represent so much that is good and admirable about America and about uh, people who devote themselves to public service. And one of the things that's really frightening about the moment we're in is that when somebody deeply corrupt is elected, it is, um, and I, by the way, I had problems with Clinton on this score too, because when somebody is corrupt, their only way of, uh, of keeping that from being devastating to them personally is to say, everybody is corrupt. Everybody's corrupt. So who, whose corrupt person do you want, theirs or, my, or yours? It's a choice between corruptions. And he... Trump was able to do that with Hillary Clinton very well. Hillary Clinton had a lot of flaws and, and was corrupt, and therefore it, it sold. And she, he didn't really have to sell the American people on her corruption. It was already known. And, uh, but, but what he has done since is attempt to undermine every institution in our society. Uh, he, he, he has done that with the cheerful cooperation of the right-wing media and, and Republicans to call into question the integrity of every institution because institutions are a threat to the kind of corruption that this president practices. Any comments? Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm afraid if I start, I won't stop. <laughs> I'll, I'll just but say yes. <laughs> but uh, that doesn't mean I'm not going to start. <laughs> okay, All I had to say was yes. So. <laughs> uh, uh, I think it bespeaks a worldview which is 100% constituted by a power struggle, right? And there is really no such thing as neutral truth, right? There is simply what is useful in the pursuit of power. And I, th I suspect that President Trump fundamentally does not believe that people who say things that contradict his beliefs or interests can do so with integrity, right? They he, doesn't, he doesn't know what integrity is. No, but, but, but it's as though there's, there is no neutral ground where truth can function, mm -hmm. right? It is all an artifact of power. Uh, unfortunately, there are some doctrines on the left, you know, sort of left-wing philosophers influenced by Nietzsche, like Foucault, for example, who say very much the same thing. Uh, but, there is no objective truth. Well, but not only not only that, 
that it's all part of a complex where utterances and power relations are so inextricably right. intertwined. It's all about power. That the, you know, it, it's not so much a denial. It, it's not a flat-footed denial of truth. It's a reduction of everything to friends and enemies and the struggle for power and survival mm-hmm. between them. And I think, I really think that that's the president's world view. And so, you know, denouncing Taylor was, I think, not an act of bad faith. He simply cannot imagine a world where Bill Taylor could have said what he said without being a dyed-in-the-wool anti-Trumper. But but the weird thing about what we're seeing in the Trump era is that it used to be, again, among conservatives, we had a respect for the rule of law. We had a respect for authority. Um, if you were to have asked a conservative in our time in in office uh, or working uh, for someone in office, uh, Mona, uh, on the conservative side, you know, whether or not they trusted the intelligence community, whether or not they trusted the FBI, conservatives overwhelmingly would have said yes. It might have been some liberals and radicals who would have said no, on the left who would have said no. Well, and the libertarians and the, on the and right. Well, and the libertarians say it right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. they're their own, you know, they're their own. <laughs> no, no. Sorry, sorry, Damon. <laughs> uh, but, but then, so he's taken it. So now conservatives don't trust the intelligence community at all. They don't trust the FBI at all. And with his moves with Turkey and Syria, he is now teaching them not to trust the military either. Soon there will be no institutions that conservatives are going to trust because he's going to have pulled the rug out. But Donald Trump, let's be clear, is not a conservative. No, he's not. Okay, so the, the interesting question is not what Trump is doing, but why... Right. The Republican Party the follow, is following him. Right. In other words, if the Republican Party right. were sincerely That was my point earlier. If you could just have a few of those Republicans okay, who push but, back. But doesn't this, you know, uh, uh, doesn't this tell us something about sort of rotten oak conservatism where it just yeah. took a, a, a puff of wind from a blowhard to blow the tree over? Let's bring you back in, Damon. Uh, I'll, I'll respond to anything you like, but I'll, I'll just throw in this um, apparently Fred Trump, father of Donald Trump, instructed his son that there were only two kinds of people in the world, killers and losers, and you had to choose between them. Um, so that's that's supporting um, Bill's point about the way Trump sees the world. Um what what about the uh, the argument that uh, that conservatism was hollow? I'm I'm not sure that I agree with that. You're a former conservative, aren't you? Yeah, and in some ways, I still have conservative tendencies. I tend to be more conservative, kind of at the level of uh, ideas and uh, philosophy, and more liberal on policy. Uh, I sort of think that the conservative principles entail more liberal policies in the uh, in the present so yeah i'm a bit of a mix see this is really this is really interesting so of the four of us we have an ex-liberal an an ex-conservative and then along this diagonal i think we have people who have sort of stayed what they were but uh i i would would argue a little bit that i was probably when I wrote my my uh, memoir, an unlikely conservative, one of the nasty reviews I got was that you know there had been no change that I never was a liberal that I was always a conservative. I would argue, along with Ronald Reagan, that I'm a classic liberal. Mm-hmm. That you know I I've sort of always been a liberal, you know, philosophically, mm-hmm. uh, not in terms of public policy. I'm sort of the opposite of Damon, I guess. Um, but um, I don't think I've changed much. I think. The world around me has here's, changed. Well, here's a test for you. Did you vote for Hubert Humphrey or Richard Nixon in 1968? I voted for Hubert Humphrey. Well, so did I. There you so go. We were the 1968 yeah. was my first vote. Mine too. I was too young to vote. I, guess I, I don't know. Get to say yeah. that. You hadn't even been born yet, <laughs> I, I don't get to say that very often anymore, so I'm taking my shot. <laughs> I was minus, minus one years old at that election. 
Um, <laughs> the there baby. you go. Uh, but I mean, I, I would. I think that's an interesting. Some of the things like that Linda just said after what Bill was talking about, I think, is an interesting way of thinking about this question of what has happened to conservatism in the age of Trump. I do agree with sort of radical uh, conservative critics of uh, some trends in both parties recently. People like Patrick Deneen, who I know Bill is not a, a big fan of uh, Deneen's book, and I, I certainly share you, you <laughs> uh, a lot of those criticisms. But one virtue of a more radical critique from the right is that you you do see that what Linda just said is sort of right, that you know, uh, what Americans have thought of as conservatism, say, since the rise of Bill Buckley in National Review through the Reagan election and then through the the, uh, the administration of George W. Bush, there's a kind of continuity there as a kind of right-leaning liberalism. And then you have the Democratic Party's left-leaning liberalism, and it's kind of a family quarrel among liberals. Uh, Trump is not a conservative in that sense at all, but he, he does sort of resonate with a more extreme form of right-wing critique that has often allied itself politically with conservatives in Europe, which is a kind of blood and soil attachment to the nation not as a typically American kind of uh, an ideal, a set of ideas, uh, a kind of uh, almost a kind of thing that we venerate, that anyone can join a kind of universalistic vision of uh, politics and solidarity. Instead, it represents a, a statement that you know, we we people of this ethnicity live in this physical space on the planet and it's ours and we love it only because it's ours, not because it matches up with any higher notion of what's good, but simply because it's ours and we'll fight viciously to protect it. And I, as your leader, Donald Trump, am the kind of manifestation of your will, the people, and so forth. So this this vision is is not conservative in the sense that that word was used for most of, say, the post-war period up until quite recently. But it, it, it certainly isn't foreign to modern politics. Uh, and that that is exactly right. And that encapsulates why this battle on the, what used to be called the right is so bitter, because uh, if that kind of conservatism is now triumphant, uh, and it's, I think it's too soon to tell, but that is antithetical to everything that um, some of us have always believed and uh, have been raised to believe. And it's, and it's antithetical, I think, to the American idea. Um, and uh, and and it it's frankly it's uh, it's a scary kind of uh, of right wing um, fanaticism and uh, and and if we're if we're headed in that direction some of us will resist it with every particle of our beings uh, it's just as scary as the radicalism of the left which we've been um, very worried about all of our lives. This would be Pat Buchanan's revenge. <laughs> right. Well, Pat Buchanan won the twenty you know the twenty sixteen uh, election. Yeah, you could certainly argue that. All right, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what is happening on foreign policy. Um, Trump announced that he is lifting sanctions on Turkey within the last 24 hours, and these are sanctions that he imposed after the Turks did what Trump told Erdogan in that phone call that he was free to do. Uh, meanwhile, tens of thousands of Kurdish refugees are fleeing northern Syria. At least 100 ISIS prisoners have escaped, according to Defense Secretary Mark Esper. Um, some of the consequences of this betrayal of the Kurds, uh, terrible human suffering, rape, murder, dispossession. Iran will get a land bridge that it's long wanted uh, to Lebanon, to its client there, Russia and Turkey having to deal for joint control of the Kurdish areas. And contrary to the idea that this means we are in getting out of endless commitments in the Middle East, Trump announced that he's sending 20, uh, 2,000 more American troops to Saudi Arabia. So, uh, question four. <laughs> so your objection is? <laughs> God. All right. Um, so, Damon, you're a skeptic of, um, of U.S. Uh, leadership. I know you're not a fan of the way Trump did this, but um, 
but and I'm sure you would not you would not approve of the U.S. being a source of mercenaries for Saudi Arabia's uh, monarchy. Um, but uh, but you do think I uh, I surmise that uh, that the U.S. needs to reevaluate its its worldwide commitments in the post Cold War era. So tell us tell us you know uh, how you well, feel. Well, I mean, all of as that. you said, I mean. I, I do, on the whole, think that uh, American foreign policy has has sort of uh, just kind of cruised along on inertia uh, since roughly like 2003 when we invaded uh, Iraq. And I think that it requires a kind of full-scale reevaluation and prioritization of what we're doing where. So in general, I, I think that it would be a good idea to draw down troops in various places. I do think that the Afghanistan conflict is at this point uh, almost comically overextended. We've been there a very long time. It's the longest war this nation has fought, I think, by what, a factor of three? Um, and then a lot of what we're doing in the Middle East, I don't think makes a lot of strategic sense. What I really am calling for is kind of a, a deep, serious conversation among the foreign policy establishment and its members about what strategy are we pursuing here? What interests are we advancing? What are our interests right now and in which region of the world? And I think that we, we sort of avoid ever having that conversation and instead prefer these strange kind of uh kind of moral categories thrown around all the time about about you know the the liberal international order which just means we should be everywhere and controlling everything because anything american touch america touches is good for us it's good for them it's good for everybody and then the conversation ends but that's not very uh, i think adequate for me now the thing though with trump though is i think and i fear that he's going to end up discrediting any attempt to make this kind of a course correction or adjustment because his rhetoric states stuff that I, for instance, would like. But in fact, what he does is is typical for him. It's kind of all ineptly executed. It shows no awareness of the world at all. He can't think strategically about anything except himself and his own enrichment. He can't think further than the next five minutes. And what you see is this really appalling and alarming uh, flip-flopping, jumping around almost from hour to hour where like, I mean, you, it's almost a joke. You, you said Trump has lifted Turkish sanctions. What, that we imposed like what, eight days ago or something? <laughs> I mean, would you even yeah. see it in, yeah. in, in, in Turkey's kind of economic macroeconomic analysis? Would you see those sanctions touch anything? It's all been, it's been ridiculous. So, um, let, let me let me push back though on the liberal international order for uh, for a second. Um, look, the U.S. had a very small troop presence in Syria. There were no Americans dying in Syria. It was a tiny number of soldiers, but they were a tripwire, and they were supporting the Kurds, eleven thousand of whom died to de defeat a very vicious and threatening uh, group called ISIS uh, that most Americans badly wanted defeated and did not want to fight themselves. And so we partnered with the uh, with the Kurds and uh, and I think it was a very uh, small investment of uh, of US uh, power and treasure you know, human, uh, and, and financial to uh, to achieve a worthwhile end, and the Kurds are one of the only uh, groups in the Middle East that are well disposed uh, toward liberal values. Well, I think uh, you know you could make that case, and I think Eli Lake, who was a guest a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, made a kind of cogent case exactly along those lines in this particular case. But I'm more in favor of having a bigger conversation that, okay, fine, maybe we do keep a few hundred American troops as a tripwire in this part of Syria, but we need to have a bigger conversation about the fact that the reason we were there trying to defeat ISIS is precisely because of various uh, radiating consequences from the Iraq war. Why did we do the Iraq war? What about the fact that we are NATO allies with Turkey and Turkey has very good historical reasons to be very suspicious of the PKK, the Turkish group of radical leftists, many of whom were involved with the very people we were fighting with 
And Turkey, you know, as much as we may sympathize with the Kurds, and there's been a lot of rhetoric in our news about, oh, the poor Kurds, but the fact is that there can be no Turkish, there can be, sorry, no Kurdish state because the Kurds exist in Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey. And if there were a Kurdistan, it would threaten to break apart all of those countries. And so Turkey can never permit it. It would threaten its own territorial integrity. And we would understand that if it were us. So that's all, all I'm saying. I'll stop there. All I'm saying is that all of those kind of trade-offs and problems that I just mentioned, you barely hear about in the American media. Nobody talks in those terms. That doesn't require a PhD in international relations to, to, to think about it in those terms. It just requires a kind of base minimum awareness of the problem. And instead, we prefer to kind of emote. And uh, that's what I'm kind of critical now, I th completely understood. Uh, but I would just add one quick thing, which is um, you would almost uh, conclude that when it comes to these delicate situations, such as that with the Kurds and the Turks, who are both allies, that um, you need expertise and care about American foreign policy. Instead, but anyway, Trump. on to yeah. you, Bill. <laughs> right. And the other guys have Putin. Yeah. He turns out to be disturbingly good at this business. Oh, and uh, very lucky in his... In his uh, well, uh, as Napoleon famously yeah, said... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Better you know, to be lucky than smart, <laughs> right? yeah. Uh, but, you know, I have a, I have a somewhat different take <laughs> okay. on this. Uh, I mean, I absolutely agree with Damon, of course, about the war in Iraq, and I vociferously said as much in the summer and the fall before the war broke out, uh, and it has had radiating negative consequences. Uh, and so we're not disagreeing about that, but I think we have a different kind of disagreement. And that is that I'm not in favor of endless wars any more than the next man or woman is, but I am in favor of endless truces, if that's the best we can do. And endless truces need to be policed. Uh, there is an endless truce on the Korean Peninsula. And if it weren't for us, you know, all of Korea would look like Pyongyang on a bad day. Uh, there is an enduring truce in the Balkans, policed by us. Does anybody want to go back to the slaughter? Uh, so and, wait, you're saying you're against endless truces? It sounds no, like no, you're I making favor. the case for them. No, no, he's no, for Oh, sorry. You're for them. Okay. I am making the case. Okay, got I'm it. I'm making the case huh. of, for endless truces. Okay, got it. And if the United States can take the lead in securing endless truces at, you know, at minimum sustainable loss of treasure, and we hope no blood at all, uh, I don't think that a single I don't think that a single American has been, you know, killed in combat on the Korean Peninsula, you know, since the since the ceasefire. Uh, obviously, there are accidents, but uh, yeah. like you know, trucks rolling off roads. But you have accidents. Trust me, as a you know, as a former Marine, you know, trucks fall off roads in Camp Pendleton, and people don't do so well. So, uh, and so the question is. What price are we willing to pay to patrol, as far as we can tell, endless truces? And I'm not saying I'm not saying that we should squander, you know, our precious bodily fluids on that activity. Uh, but as far as I can tell, the two instances that I just named fall into the category of eminently affordable truce patrols. Uh, Keeping the peace in Europe, which I do not believe would have been sustained as comfortably without, as far as we can tell, a permanent emplacement of American troops in, 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 in Europe, I think meets the cost-benefit test that I'm suggesting. And I agree with Mona. What we were doing in Syria met a cost-benefit test. What we are doing in Afghanistan at this point arguably doesn't because there's no truce to patrol, and we cannot win the war. 
Yeah, can I just make one other point? I, I agree with I agree with that. I'm not sure about the Afghanistan. I think I think Do you think I agree. we can win the war? No, no. I, I, I think I agree about Afghanistan. I've got to give that a little bit more thought. Me but, too, uh, but but I'm just uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, make, I, I'm making a very simple point yeah. that we cannot win that war and therefore there is no truce to patrol. Right, right, right. Yeah, that 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 may be right. Um but uh, but the re I just wanted to add something to what you said about the truces because I totally agree with it. But I want to just add this: one of the reasons that the U.S. was able to play this role post World War II was because of our honor and our reputation and the fact that people trusted us. Mm-hmm. You know, the famous quip about NATO was that it was to keep the Russians out, the Germans down, and the Americans in. That was because we were trusted, um, and and similarly in other parts of the world, and with good reason. Uh, this so-called American empire that that dominated the post World War II world was the most benign empire I think that the world has ever known. Uh, obviously, we had our sins and we had our faults, and I wouldn't deny those, but. I think that this is an, another challenge of the Trump era, um, which is that that he is trying to remake our image into something much more ferocious and selfish and uninterested in the values that we have always claimed to represent and did represent. Well, look, he has turned JFK's inaugural address on its head. We will bear no burden and pay no price in the but, defense of the And that's what he would do. But, but can I just push back a little bit against Damon um, on this question of, of, you know, getting a bunch of thinkers together and let's, you know, in general, I, I agree with that. I think we should be rethinking our policy. Iraq, uh, which I supported, I think ended up being a mistake. Now, I would put more blame perhaps in others, uh, at least Bill and maybe Damon as well, on Barack Obama's, you know, pulling out after we had, in fact, one, uh, one in Iraq. But what you're not taking into account is ISIS is, you know, we, we can be attacked. We were attacked by uh, al-Qaeda in, in, in uh, on 9-11. Before the Iraq War. Before the Iraq War. We have had these horrible killings by ISIS, and we will, in fact, see more. So no matter what kind of ideal foreign policy we come up with and where we make the right choices and we uh, emphasize our strategic interests and, and don't get sucked into things, something is going to happen, and we're going to find ourselves in the same position as we were on 9-11. That's my view. I mean, I think we are going to face that kind of future, and it has been made more precarious by uh, Donald I'd, Trump's I'd just, decision. Wait, can I just briefly follow up? Um, that I, To be a little bit more concrete, um, you know, the, just this week, the Senate voted overwhelmingly to, uh, to kind of uh, give thumbs up to the ascension of North Macedonia to NATO. This is a very good example of a, of a case where I think this is ridiculous. Like, why on earth would we be inviting in this small country on the far eastern perimeter of the European continent to join NATO? What does America get from that? What are we going to do? Get attacked and invoke Article 5 so that North Macedonia can send an army to defend us? It's a joke. Why would we do that? Similarly in Asia, we, we, we not only have tripwires in these truces that Bill mentioned, but we have kind of implied tripwires all over the world with some Republican presidents and maybe some Democrats, not Trump, I think. But what, you know, if, if the protests in Hong Kong continue and get worse, eventually China is going to go in there and crush them and they're going to kill a lot of people. Should the United States be willing to get into a, a full-on shooting war with China over that or not? There are some Republicans, I guarantee you, who would say yes. What about Taiwan? Do we want a tripwire to protect Taiwan forever? And then how long until China or another rising power decides to test this? Putin already did test it in, in eastern Ukraine, and we blinked, and so he knows, all right, some sanctions, but basically it's mine if I want to keep it. 
uh, Trump, I think, is accelerating this process because I think if he wins again, we could very well see a China move or another move by Putin to try to test NATO, for instance, in the in the Putin case. And then the, then he will have called our bluff and shown that actually these tripwires don't mean that much uh, after all. And I would say one reason why that might be the case, uh, even with another president in the Oval Office, is that they are, in effect, they are bluffs. Okay, we're going to, we're going to, that is a huge subject that I think we will have to return to uh, in another podcast, because before we go today, I do want to get to the Democratic Party. Um, I don't know if any of you watched the most recent Democratic debate, um, but uh, I think it's fair to describe it as rainbows and lollipops for everyone. And there's no price. uh, Nothing costs money. Uh, we can give free stuff to everybody. This is a caricature of the Democrats, but there's there's a lot to it. Um, you know, the, among the things that the Democratic candidates are are promising is free college, which, by the way, goes to the wealthiest segment of our population. So it's a tax on the uh, poor people to pay for the lifestyles of richer people. Uh, free medical care, free child care, rent subsidies, a federal job guarantee, more regulation, tariffs, a ban on fracking, no nuclear power. Um, these people do not seem to me to be ready to um, present a creditable, realistic uh, candidate uh, for president. A, a, a little bit more to set up, and then let's hear from you all. Um, uh, Biden was is leading in all the national polls, but and his his lead has been s- strong. On the other hand, in the early states in Iowa, New Hampshire, he's trailing. He has very little money on hand, um, and uh, he may be um, a huge balloon ready to burst. Okay, uh, who wants to take it away? Well, I think it is incumbent upon me right. to push back just a little. Okay, uh, what you just did, Mona and I'm not chastising you for this, but merely correcting you, is to recite what some Democrats are advocating, but not all of them, okay? And let's take the most significant example, the cost of health care, in particular the cost of Medicare for all. That has become a major flashpoint within the party. Biden is firmly on the record as saying that we simply can't afford it, and he has a low-price alternative. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, you know, has really taken the lead in, you know, in taxing, so to speak, Elizabeth Warren with not having come up with a, with a plan to pay for it, or and also not being very forthcoming about what this will do to the middle class, both very fair questions. Amy Globachar has made the same points repeatedly. So what you're characterizing as the Democratic Party in its totality is in fact about half the Democratic Party. And the other half is not at all sure that that's the right way to go. And there is going to be a shootout. But what? But the the half that is sane, let us say, and that recognizes that money doesn't grow on trees, um, who's the candidate? Look, uh, who's the candidate on the other side, right? In other words, this this is what primary this is what primaries are for. And as as a veteran of six presidential campaigns and even more primaries, I can tell you that things always look and feel this way in the early stages, and everybody looks like a hopeless pygmy at this point, with very few exceptions. And somehow, as the field narrows and the debate clarifies and people and people see smaller groups of people on, on stage you know, arguing more coherently and at greater length about the things that really matter, uh, at that point, we'll be able to sort out the candidates, or at least the leading candidates on each side of this democratic divide. And I will just join you in that, Bill. Thank God most Americans were not watching that debate. I wasn't. I was watching my team, the Nationals, who I think were were playing against the Cardinals at that point. And I think that's what 
most ordinary people were doing. They were watching baseball games or they were watching So You Think You Can Dance or whatever, one of these other, and that's probably not even on anymore, but, you know, one of the, one of the television shows that they liked, they weren't watching those debates. I actually think that the number of debates we have and the you know, the plethora of candidates uh, up on the stage there has not been good for democracy. Um, either with a large or a small D. Yeah, either either way. I yeah, totally so agree. I totally agree with that. I think, and thankfully, not many people are watching. Well, actually, they uh, a lot of them started started watching. Uh, they started off watching, but as a, the the most recent debate was not. The ratings are going down. Yes, not up. they are. So. T- I just looked this up today. Can this be right that Pete Buttigieg won the mayoralty of his city by winning 8,500 votes? <laughs> that's his electoral record. Now, in in the days before Trump, I would have said, "Gee, that kind of that's kind of disqualifying," you know, becoming the mayor of a small city. But of course, we now have a president who was never elected to anything. Look, <laughs> you know. And he's one of the more impressive people up he there is. on the no, stage, I, I have I to say. I agree he and is. All, but... But, and here, here's the problem. Uh, and I think we're all in the same boat in this respect. Uh, maybe, maybe one of the other participants in this podcast did not say that the election of Donald Trump was unimaginable and impossible, but I certainly did. And I'm still scraping the egg off my face and that has made me a lot more cautious about saying words like never, impossible, unthinkable, et cetera, because the unthinkable, impossible it happened. happened. It happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's right. I mean, but look, as somebody who wishes the Democrats well um, this time around, and for the first time in my life, actually wants a Democrat to win the presidency. I voted against every Democrat I could vote against my entire life. And um, we will I'm, hate it, Mona, you and I, when one is elected because we if, will disagree with them if, on 95% well, of everything. Perhaps, you know, but um, uh, but but I'm, I'm very concerned. I, I do think that Biden has shown tremendous weakness, um, not in the national polling, but in his inability to grasp the moment. This was tailor-made for him. He he flubbed it. He seems really, uh, we talked last on the last podcast about some of his, some of his weaknesses. I'm very worried about him that, that, uh, that he may collapse. Um, and I'm worried about Buttigieg because there's so much at stake. And I'm concerned that a lot of sort of borderline voters might say, I don't want a gay president. And I'm concerned about Elizabeth Warren because I think she is awful. She is dishonest. All of her ideas are bad and dangerous and unconstitutional. And I'm worried that she might not win because she's so unlikable. Um, and um, and so I'm, uh, that's why I say, who's the candidate going to be? I'm, I'm concerned about this field. I'm, when I saw that piece about, uh, oh, and Sanders is both too radical and too old. So, um, uh, when that piece ran the other day, and I know they run every four years, the piece about, you know, Is Democratic no insiders are worried and <laughs> would like to see someone else, you know, jump into the race. But, you know, I I think that's that's a fair worry. What what do you think, Damon? Well, I mean, I, I just saw some somewhere earlier today, I think it might have been a Pew poll uh, showing that that in fact, uh, historically, in contrast, I think the last four election cycles, Democrats are actually happiest with this field than they've been. And this is rank and file Democrats, not Bill and me and, uh, you know, the people who were anonymously interviewed in that New York Times piece you uh, referred to, uh, most of whom are probably very rich Democratic donors um, who spend a lot of money and therefore worry a lot about what they just invested in. Um, I think I, I, I mean, yeah, well, the, I've been called that before. Um, the in the fact is, uh, I do think Biden is weak. I agree with much of what all of you have said. There are things to be concerned about. Um, I worry about Warren and Sanders as being too far to the left, mainly. And that, uh, you know, that Trump actually won't have to lie about them very much in order to do a lot of damage with negative ads simply replay things they've said. Uh, you know, it would be the easiest job in the world to do negative ads against them if you were a Republican. But I do think that the fact that Biden stays as high as he does, 
The fact that Buttigieg made a very calculated decision before this last debate to move to the center. It was very obvious. He shifted on several issues. He stopped talking about the ridiculous proposal to expand the Supreme Court, uh, court packing. And, and he made a point of going after Warren and some of the others, especially, uh, Beto O'Rourke, who's my, uh, Beto's my, my bete noir. <laughs> <laughs> can't stand being. I like it. Um, Best so, noir. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you know, you look at it and you see, well, beat a Buttigieg in a few polls this week. He's edging up after that, you know, dash to the center. Biden stays high. You add their support together and you're in the kind of mid to high 30s. And then you put Warren and Sanders together. They're around the same, maybe slightly high together. But then you have all these other candidates who have two and three percentage points. And we don't know where those voters will go when they drop out. I agree with Bill. Where this is, this is a pretty evenly matched argument in the Democratic Party about which way we're going to go. And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't necessarily assume uh, the outcome of that quite yet. And I think we might be okay after. It is good, isn't it, that Sanders stays in the race because it keeps that left-wing block divided between Sanders and Warren. And not you never get so strange. You hear these polls where people ask for their second choice, and like half of Sanders go to Biden. So you just, oh, I yeah, mean, well, we're, yeah. we're all we're all intellectuals and journalists, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so right. we assume we everybody's a consistency thinking. There. <laughs> exactly. Silly well, me. Could, Did I could, say that? There could be consistency along different dimensions, <laughs> yes. right? So if people who want They old, just like old guys. Old That's white guys. Yeah. Old guys. People like old white guys. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, um, let us now turn to our um, our recommendations of things that somebody said on the other side that we want to endorse or, or praise. Um, Linda? Well, uh, Gary Abernathy is not one of the people I usually go to to get my opinions, but he had a very good column in the Washington Post called The Downside of Anonymity. Uh, he was writing uh, not just about the book that apparently is about to come out by the author oh, of Anon- the yes. anonymous author of the New York Times piece from 2018. But he also talked about Mitt Romney and his Pierre Delecto, which has got to be just one of the weirdest things <laughs> I have hilarious. ever. At least it wasn't Carlos, Carlos Danger. Danger. <laughs> That's all I think when I saw it. <laughs> but anyway, it's a good piece, Is and I do. Is Delecto an anagram or something? I, I don't know. know. That's a good Does, question. Yeah, I, I should yeah. have looked it up since yeah. I was going to bring it up, but I didn't. Oh, that was weird. <laughs> In a world that you thought couldn't get weirder, <laughs> I just did. <laughs> okay, Damon, what's yours? Well, this one really hurts. Um, oh. I, I am not a fan of Brett Stevens's writing, although wow. I guess I should say that as a writer, he's extremely gifted. He knows how to write a punchy op-ed uh, and has won a Pulitzer for it. So uh, bravo for that. He uh, has a, a column up, I think, today in the Times titled, Will Democrats Become Born Again Neocons? And this this distills everything that I really don't want to happen, but I appreciate people on the other side making cogent cases for me to think against and argue against, and it's a very uh, powerful column, so I recommend that. Okay, Bill. This one will not surprise Linda. Uh, <laughs> my nominee for this week is Trent Lott. <laughs> <laughs> who, you know, who co-authored a piece with uh, Tom Daschle that appeared today, you know, about the way that sanity was preserved to the extent that it could have been preserved in 1999 in the Senate when the articles of impeachment came over from the House, uh, and uh, recommending a similar path uh, for the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020, whenever the articles, which I believe are now inevitable, reach the Senate, and uh, I hope, I I hope that uh, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer are listening carefully, because there needs to be an island of sanity in a sea of craziness, and it's not going to be the House of Representatives, and it's not going to be the White. Before I do mine, I just wanted to share with you all a story that I came across. Linda, you worked on the Watergate Committee, and you may 
remember this story. I had not learned, not known this before, but apparently there is good evidence that during the crazy 1974 year, when, as we all recall, um, Agnew resigned as vice president, there was a period of time where we had no vice president and where Nixon was facing impeachment. And the next in line for the presidency, if Nixon had been impeached, would have been Carl Albert, who was the Democratic Speaker of the House. And he promised that if that happened, he would not take the position. And he would hand it off to, um, I can't remember who he said he would hand it off to, uh, uh, the the minority leader? Majority leader. There's a law of succession. I right. know, but right. it was he different then. He didn't, he right, he, he couldn't just choose. choose. The next president. <laughs> right, no, no, there's a law of succession, but but if he didn't take it, then the next one would have been, I can't remember who the next yeah. in line would have been, but okay, anyway, that, that imagine that now, uh, because yeah. he was so concerned <laughs> that, that there would, it would be seen to be a coup that had put the other party in power, which is just interesting little historical footnote. But anyway, okay, uh, mine is, my, my recommendation is uh, Daniel Dresner. Uh, professor at the Fletcher School. I, I don't frequently agree with him, but uh, but he uh, was was um, quoting a tweet from Ben Shapiro. Uh, fairly uh, well, Ben Shapiro had tweeted that Trump can argue plausibly that Burisma was part and parcel of his general anti-corruption concern. So Dresner retweeted this and just wrote, "Oh, honey, bless your heart." <laughs> <laughs> All right, friends, thank you. Uh, We've uh, put another beg to differ in the can. Thank you all for coming, and uh, until next time.